If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 7. While you're going there, this story camp we're talking about, the whole theme for the story camp is going to be God as our rescuer, or Jesus as the rescuer. And so every story is going to have to be with how God rescued humanity. It's going to be awesome. We're tying stories from across the Bible together. It's going to be super fun. So make your way to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the text and read it, and then we'll kick off from there. Chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you... well. Let me stop there. I'm going to stop at 11. We're going to do chapter 12 or verse 12 next week, but I'll read it anyways. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. I I know you guys know this, but I'll just clarify. I I hate math. Did you know that? I I despise math. I intentionally got a a Bachelor of Arts degree so that I didn't have to do any science or math or anything like like that. And here's why I hate math. Math is a big giant lie that gets told over and over again through school until it traps you. I can prove it. I, I promise. I, I can prove it. Because the lie goes something like this. Guys, math is so simple. It's so easy. I mean, don't you know two plus two equals four? That's so easy. Guys, math is so, so simple. And if you didn't know, you know, we can actually take that plus sign and we can tilt it like 15 degrees. But don't worry, it still stays really simple. We'll just do two times two, but two times two also equals four. Guys, math is so simple. Oh, did, did you know that you actually can take every, every number, all infinite of them, and then break those numbers infinitely down into more numbers? But don't worry, it's really simple. So you could just take it and say like 2.2 plus 2.2 equals 4.4. Guys, math is so simple. It's so easy. And actually, you could take those decimals and just turn them into fractions and say something like 11 over 5 plus 11 over 5 equals 22 over 5. 22 over 5 is actually the same thing as 4.4. But don't you know, math math is so simple. It's so easy. And then you get to, like, high school, and your teachers say, you have to memorize this, X equals negative B plus or minus radical B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. You're like, what? That's not math. That's letters. I don't, that's like freshman level math now. That's freshman algebra is quadratic formula, and it's still locked in here. Let me tell you how often I use the quadratic formula. Because I hate math, so there's other people that use it. I, I am not one of those those people. But here's the problem: so so you get to that, and that's like high school level. When Haley and I were in Socorro, we worked closely with students at New Mexico Tech, and we would like go into their room sometime to meet with students or whatever. And more than once, I would go into a student's room, and they would have something like this written on their whiteboard. I I can't make sense of any of that, just so you know. But literally, they would just have this written on their whiteboard, and I'm like, that poor student. They're there because someone lied to them. They were sitting in the kindergarten class one day, and some teacher's like, guys, math is so simple. And they believed them. And look at where it, it got them. Math is just built on this lie of math is so simple. 
Now, luckily, we have much easier and simpler things in life that we can focus on. You know, simple things like prayer. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And if that doesn't seem simple enough to you, let me just give you some more phrases right from the lips of Jesus. I'm going to do these really rapid fire, so hold with me here. Matthew 19, 19. If two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21, 22. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me of anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and produce fruit that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. John 16, 23 and 24. Truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. It's, guys, it's so simple. Intentionally living like Jesus means asking God for anything you want and getting everything you asked for. So we're just going to have a time where you can come forward in prayer and we're going to have the band. No, because before we do that, let me just ask a quick question. How many of you ever have prayed for something and it didn't come? Like everyone in here, right? And I'm not just saying like a simple, I asked God for this and it didn't happen, but I'm talking, how many of you desperately have cried to heaven from your knees in tears, God, rescue, God, come heal, God, come help, God, come relieve, God, come save, God, come give, and you begged your father with the assurance of faith that it would happen and it didn't because I have and I would wager that most of you have as well so if we take Jesus's words and we say guys it's so simple just ask and you'll receive but we couple that with the universally held experience that we all have of God answering no how do we make sense of this? Maybe, just maybe, there's something deeper at play. And maybe it's actually somewhere in that depth that we find the heart of prayer that Jesus calls us to. Because for Jesus, prayer is the basic habit of a life of one, a basic habit in the life of one of his followers. And more specifically, it is the response when we understand the love of the Father. And this is not something Jesus just teaches as you should pray. It's something Jesus himself demonstrates. It's something Jesus himself lives out. And when we start to read through the Gospels, it's fascinating because when the disciples look at the life of their leader... When they observe his intellect and they see his wisdom and they watch him do miracles and they, and they see demons fleeing out of people, and then they come to Jesus, the request from what we can tell is not, teacher, te teach us to do miracles like you do. J Jesus, teach us to tell parables like you teach. 
Jesus, teach us to stick it to the Pharisees the way you do. In Luke chapter 11, when the disciples come to Jesus and they're going to boil it all down to say, we want to do this thing that Jesus does, they say, teacher, teach us to pray like you. Of all the things Jesus did and taught, it seems one of the key ideas that just burrowed into the minds of his disciples was this guy prays like no one I've ever met. This guy talks to God, to the Father, like no one I've seen pray before. And I think the only way we can make sense of this is to say that the, Jesus prays in a way no one else ever prayed because he understood the Father in a way no one else ever understood the Father. In short, prayer is the natural response to rightly understanding God, or, or to keep in theme with what we've been doing through the Sermon on the Mount, intentionally living like Jesus means understanding God and responding in prayer. That's what Jesus is conveying. This isn't a ask God whatever you want and he gives it to you no matter what. It's a understand who the Father in heaven is. And as you understand God, you will then respond to God in prayer. So again, another little quick response time. Who, who in here would say, I think, Philip, I think I just pray too much. I, just, I have a lot of things going on, and i got to cut back on my prayer time. I am praying way too much right now. Not a one of us, right? There's like no one that comes to church today that's thinking, I really got to figure out a way to cut back on my prayer time. It's way too much in my life right now. How, how many of us would look at that and say, I think I could probably pray a little bit more. See, the reality is, almost all of us knows that we should pray more. The question then is, if we know Jesus was all about prayer, exemplifying a life of prayer that had been unrivaled by anyone else in the history of the universe, that all of his disciples noticed, and then he tells us, pray like this, pray like I pray, why don't we pray? None of you came to church this morning and sitting in this pew thought, oh yeah, I never thought about praying before. I should try that sometime. We all know this. Why don't we pray more? Why don't we take up Jesus' clear invitation? Or at least, why do we keep waiting until there's desperate times to follow some prepackaged formula of posture so that we can try to earn God's attention. And, and I think there's some base level realities we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. We're, we're busy. We're, we're self-reliant. We have mixed priorities. Uh, we have these cool things called smartphones that can distract us from pretty well near every waking moment of our life. But even with all of those things at play, most of us still find time to do the things we want to do. And, and I hear you young parents out there saying, yeah, you don't know yet at all, Philip, so come back in a month and a half and tell me this. But most of us, find, we find time to eat and sleep and, and even exercise for some of us, and that takes way more time than prayer does in a lot of ways. Why don't we pray? And I think given this, the most logical response is we don't pray because we don't understand God. We don't pray because we don't understand the Father. 
And so I'm going to use this as an example, and I know I've picked on this example a lot over the past, but it's such a prevalent, ongoing reality in the world we're living in, it's worth just speaking into a couple times. But take, for example, our experience as a people with anxiety. Record high numbers, far greater than what we've ever seen. It's continuing to skyrocket, particularly among younger generations. There is just this low-grade hum of anxiety that seems to never go away. Well, did you know that God, in his word, in the Bible, teaches prayer as the adverse action to anxiety? That it's actually prayer that is the combat against this feeling of anxiety. And we see that somewhat here in Matthew chapter 7, because towards the end, he's going to just say, will your Father in heaven give good things to those, or how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you remember back a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about don't worry, one of the things he's going to say is don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field that are here today and thrown in tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Do you see it's the same flow of logic right here as it is in the end of chapter 6. That it's the reliance on understanding God and then the approach of a conversation with God that actually alleviates the feeling of worry and anxiety. And it's not just from the words of Jesus. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says it this way. Chapter 4 verse 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So don't be anxious, but pray. It's the adverse effect. And then he says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, Scripture uses prayer as the approach to attack anxiety. But any one of you that's felt that low-grade tug of anxiety weigh on your heart, Any one of you that have laid in bed at night with your heart racing about the pace of a marathon runner, you know better than this. Because if you're a therapist, right, and you're doing therapy, and someone comes in and they say, I'm just worried and anxious all the time, and you say, well, pray more. You're going to get fired. Even as a pastor, I know that it sounds ridiculous in our minds to hear that term, pray more, and you won't be anxious. It not only sounds ridiculous, it feels empty in a lot of ways. Because for those of you that have experienced that emotion of anxiety and worry, and you've actually laid in bed in that fret and then went to the Father and said, God, I can't stomach this feeling. Take it away from me, only to say amen and still have your heart stay at the pace it's going. How do we make sense of this? Because I've, I've as, a, as a pastor, I've had plenty of conversations with, with people who say they're trying to navigate this ever-present check engine light on their dashboard that just is flashing worry. you got to worry. And I've had way less conversations about someone saying, man, I just have this transcendent peace promised through prayer and So what's going on with this? Because the undeniable truth of Scripture 
is that God promises a supernatural sort of peace that we can't logically conceive in place of crippling anxiety, and the exchange rate is through prayer. And yet, how many of us have prayed for God to take away anxiety, and the prayer has actually had the opposite effect? I was thinking about this this week. I had two ways of taking this sermon, and I chose this one. Because in a weird way, I think we've come to a place that prayer doesn't relieve our anxieties in the way we practice it. Prayer actually opens the door to an entirely new set of anxieties. Prayer opens the door to a new way of thinking that holds us more in tight, kind of weird relationship with God than if we hadn't prayed. It has this ability to uncover this fear that we probably could have just ignored had we never engaged conversation with God in the first place. But now that I'm talking with him, so I want to just speak into that and identify. I don't usually do these types of sermons where I give four points. and It's not about it, but I thought naming those things at least helps. Because what happens when prayer actually highlights our own anxiety? Because here are the things that prayer will highlight in your life. Number one, prayer will highlight your lack of control. Prayer is great at highlighting your lack of control. And we've come to this point in the last 300 years or so of the world where we have really learned how to control things as a human race. I mean, post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution, there is a lot of things that we can now control that we never could control in the past. Food production, all of these types of things are far more easily manipulated and controlled than what it's ever been. And with that's come this mindset that we actually can master anything we practice. And you better master things quickly because if you try to do something and you're not very good at it, you're probably going to get socially wrecked. So you better master the best child discipline techniques that produce the best behaved children. And you better master that complex narrative TV show that everyone's watching and talking about. And you probably should master how to navigate a town that has the most ridiculously named streets in the country. Because who puts East 17th Street right parallel to East 17th Lane? Portales does. Oh, and, and if you can't master those things then just avoid them. You don't know how to use chopsticks at the restaurant, then use a fork. Don't try to use chopsticks. If your kids can't act right, then definitely don't take them to that restaurant. And if you can't keep up with that TV show, then just cancel your Netflix subscription and find something better to do. This is the reason I refuse to rock climb. When I first moved here, uh, Pastor David would take uh, me and Haley, and we would all go rock climbing, and he was incredible at it and is incredible at it. I hate it because I'm not good at it. So guess how often I'm going to rock climb? The things that we can master, we pursue, and the things we can't master, we give up on. That's become a steady practice within our modern world. But here's, here's the problem. Prayer is not something to be mastered. Prayer cannot be mastered. The very posture of prayer is actually placing yourself from master into submission. 
asking, seeking, knocking, because you actually can't be the one to provide yourself. So prayer is not the ability to somehow earn more of God's attention if you can just get the formula right. It's humility and surrender. Prayer, in the way Jesus discusses it, flies in the face of our pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. Instead, prayer invites you to risk naivety, to risk looking like a fool, to risk trusting God enough that you might be let down. And we've been swallowed by an environment that tells us avoid that feeling. It's no wonder we don't pray when everything is about more control and prayer is about lacking control. Prayer highlights a lack of control too. Prayer highlights silence. Because what if I take Jesus at his word and I risk playing the fool, trusting that he's going to come through and he doesn't? What if I pray and God doesn't answer? It's a quote from Dallas Willard, and I've read a lot of his stuff through my sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, so I keep going back to it, but it's just good stuff. He says this, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life, and in the quiet, what if it turns out there's very little between us and God? Because here's the thing, prayer in church, prayer in small group, prayers from that friend over the phone, that's mostly enjoyable. You can go to a restaurant today, and you can probably ask your waiter or waitress, how can I pray for you? And they're not going to say, don't you dare pray for me, I hate that. Regardless of what they believe about prayer. This idea of communal prayer is a pretty good thing in most of our estimations. But prayer in the closet? where church is stripped away, where the sermon is stripped away, where all the noise is stripped away, that's way less comfortable. Because what if there's not that much to my relationship with God? And in a world addicted to noise, prayer means facing and living in silence. So in a world where I can find the answer to literally any question I have, Maybe not from God, but most assuredly from Google. Why go to God when I can seemingly find more tangible answers on my phone? Prayer risks silence. It highlights silence. Third, prayer highlights our own selfish motives. No one knows your heart better than you do. And likeliness is, because no one knows your heart better than you do, you're probably the only one that knows the complexities and the mixed motives that plague your heart and mind that you keep pretty well hidden from everyone else. Because let's just, let's just give a hypothetical here. Let's, say, let's just say you're the, you're the pastor of a church. Let's say as pastor of the church, one of the things you want to pray for is that you want to pray for your church to grow. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to pray for? It's a pretty, pretty good thing. But why would you as a pastor pray for your church to grow? Well, well, maybe there's this really pure desire to find lost people and to have them be restored to God and forgiven of their sins. And so you're saying, God, restore people and use my church to do it. That's awesome. Or, or maybe there's some skewed form of validation that's, hey, I've given my life to this thing, this ministry, this church. And the people, when they show up, that validates that calling. And if they don't show up, that devalues that calling, and it really makes me feel better when it's crowded than when it's not crowded. It's 
So God, would you make the church grow so it makes me feel better? Or maybe it's, I think I have all the answers to the world's problems, and the world would be so much better if everyone just behaved like me, looked like me, thought like me, and talked like me. And so there's some veiled Christian narcissism of, make my church bigger so there's more people like me in the world, and I don't have to deal with those people that aren't like me, God. Or is there some religious guilt that drives praying for those people? But, but it's not because I'm going to go do anything. It just helps me feel better to say, well, at least I prayed for lost people. How am I supposed to go to God when I am very well aware that all of those are realities of my heart? Surely God would look at that and say, you're not praying to me with the right mindset and reject my prayer. I mean, ask, seek, knock. Those are great things when you have the heart and mind of Christ. But if I were honest with you, there are times when my heart is not where it should be. And both me and God know it. Prayer highlights our selfish motives. Prayer highlights our inadequacies. What if I pray wrong? Like, we have constructed a prayer culture where you come and you sit in pews and you listen to people who pretty well pray in public on the regular get up and say their well-prepared prayers. And it's almost like having to go after that kid in class presentation that spent way too long working on his five-minute book review of Pride and Prejudice. And he has, like, a musical number to go with it, and you got to follow behind that. I can't pray like those people on stage pray. So why even bother? I'm not comfortable. I'm not confident. I'll just let the professionals do it. And then Jesus comes in and he says right here in Matthew 7, ask, seek, knock. And why should you do that? What's the rationale he gives? And to sum all of that up about about what human parents do with human children is this. Why should you ask, pray, knock? Because the Father is good. Because when you understand who God is, the right response is to come to him and talk. You see, prayer is not a matter of self. Prayer is not about your method or your formula or your repetition or your desired outcome or your anything. And when we paint prayer as this simple exchange like in a fast food drive through we're like, yeah, God, I'll take an order of peace which surpasses all understanding and a large side of money. We expect God to say, go ahead and pull onto the next window. I'll have that ready for you. That's not Jesus' rationale in Matthew 7. No, Jesus' rationale is that prayer is the means by which you come to a deeper, more loving relationship with your loving, eternal Father. So prayer is not a matter of self. Prayer is about your Creator and the process. And hear that word process because it's very important. The process of fostering a communal relationship planted and rooted in his ongoing love for you. Because here's a little secret. God is not concerned with your ability or your mastery. He is very well of your talents, and he's very well aware of your lack thereof. God knows every thought, every mixed motive in your heart, and he chose to die for you anyways. In fact, 
biblically speaking, God is far more comfortable hearing your complaints and your concerns probably than you are even giving them to him. I mean, have you read the Psalms? There are, there are prayers in the Psalms that they are not safe, calculated prayers pre-thought out as a means to impress God. They are raw, and even at times, uncomfortably raw. Let me just read a few for you. Psalm 140.10. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. I have been angry with people. I have never prayed God throw them in a pit. Psalm 69.3. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Psalm 142, 2. I pour out myself before him, my complaints. Before him, I tell my troubles. Psalms of anger and depression and entitlement. And I want to look at that and I want to say, God, were you aware that someone, you let someone put that as what you call spirit-breathed words of God? Who did you let write that, God? They, they should have known better than to talk to God like that. And by the way, you're very well aware of the person who wrote those. It's King David. King David, the unreachable bar for all the following kings. King David, the man after God's own heart. King David, the one whose bloodline it was promised would lead to the Messiah. Those are his prayers. So the same man that prays the serene, the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I need. Also prayed, God, I want you to throw those people in a pit of fire that I never see them again. Same guy. The same David who prayed, God satisfies my desire with good things so that my youth is renewed like eagles, also prayed, I've called out for help so much my throat hurts and you've not done anything. Why does the Bible include both sides? Because God is looking for a relationship, not a well-prepared speech spoken from a perfect motive. When it comes to prayer, God is not grading essays. He's talking to his children. And if the Bible tells us anything about prayer, it's that God actually prefers that rough draft full of ongoing, and sen ongoing sentences and run-on sentences than he does the polished, edited version we think impresses him. So let me go back to that math illustration. Let's say you're going to teach kindergarten math and in teaching kindergarten math, you decide the best way to teach them math is actually day one to write that picture up on the board for them. You're going to draw every single detail out. You draw the calculus equation out in a room of kindergartners, and you say, this is actually how complicated math can become. And that really helps them, doesn't it? No, it doesn't help them at all. You give them simplistic ways to practice a progressively complicating subject, trusting that before they ever fret about the complexities, they rest in the confidence of the simplistic. And it's with that I want to close. So often when we come to prayer, we start to notice all the complexities of it. Well, how is God going to get around my busted, broken heart? I mean, he knows my broken motives, so I can't let him see that. And, and why pray if God already knows what I need? Why would I even come to him? And if God's going to do what God's going to do, then why do I even need to? 
and we just start approaching all of these complexities in prayer. And all the things are worth talking about at some point. But if we start in the complexity of our hearts, then it's no wonder we never pray. See, what Jesus is getting at here is to come to the Father and rest in the confidence of the simplistic. So you understand God. What is your mindset when you approach God in prayer? Hey, God, I know you're really busy right now, um, but I'm just, I need to talk for a little bit. Hey, God, I know you're mad at me, and I don't know how, how you would even listen to me. I've really messed up. So, Or, hey, God, here I am. See, when it comes to prayer, the best way that I think that we could just start this is this way. Pray as you can. Not a single one of you in here are saying, I don't need to pray anymore. I'm pretty done with that. I, I pray way too much anyways. But I'm telling you, if you leave here and your thought in this process is, all right, tomorrow I'm committing to an hour of prayer, you will fail. If that's not something you do regularly, it'll, it'll fall apart. So pray as you can. When you drive to work, turn off the radio or play some instrumental music and use that as a time to say, God, here I am. When you're praying and you're just rambling and you're like, I don't even know where my mind's going, just keep going and let God sort it out. Don't try to sort out yourself and come to the Father, but come to the Father and let him sort you out. Why? Because we serve a good Father, a Father that wants you to ask a father that wants you to seek, a father that wants you to knock. See, the foundation of prayer is the understanding that the father is good. So good, in fact, that even we as broken people, as absolutely destroying his creation and sin and anger and all the things we've brought to his good world, even in that, he chose to pursue us. He, he chose to chase after us and to not only pursue us in love, but then to come live a perfect life and then die in our place. He chose to rescue us knowing Tower of Babel, right? We can never ra rescue ourselves. So take that knowledge and say, God, I trust that before I trust any of my own motives. I'm here to talk and pray as you can. This morning, we're going to do a thing a little bit different. Rather than doing uh, a time of where you all stand up and sing, and we, I'm just going to have Becky come up, and she's just going to play some piano. Because if we're going to give you the chance to pray as you can, that probably needs to start right here, right now. And maybe this is your chance to just pray as you can. Maybe there's that thing that's weighing on your mind, and you don't know what to do other than just to lift it up to the kingdom of heaven. Lift it up to your king who is a good father and loves you. Maybe you and him haven't talked in a while and you just need to sort things out a little bit and not really you, but let him do it anyways. And maybe you've never known the goodness of the Father. I would be right here and I'd love to tell you what it means to give your life to the good, good Father who died for your sins. But in all of that, this is just a time to spend you and God having a conversation, praying as you can. Father God, we come to you in prayer and I pray that it would be a time that we see you understanding your character and love and goodness and responding accordingly. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be up here if you want someone to pray with, but this is just your chance to spend a few minutes in prayer.